My name is Frank, I'm one of the pastors. If you're new, I'm glad you're here. Those that are coming online, welcome. We're glad you're here as well. We're starting a new series today and I'm always excited to start a new series, particularly this one. Because if there was one series that I could get people to pay attention to, it'd be this one. Um, because our world is changing every hour, um, not surprisingly and predictably, but it is changing. Through Paul, God told us this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now we could spend days on that passage. What are the spiritual forces of evil doing in heavenly realm? Who are the authorities? Who are the powers of this dark world? You see, our struggle is a spiritual one, not a physical one. The war that we are in is not physical, it's spiritual. We engage our enemy in the battlefields of the spirit. Note that we fight against the powers of the dark world. Church of Jesus Christ is on one side. Rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world are poised on the other side of this spiritual war zone. Earth is the battlefield. What's happening here is a battle predicted thousands and thousands of years ago. We've embraced that mission. We've signed up to be on one side or the other. The enemy is clever. His numbers of followers are increasing exponentially, just like God said they would. Fastest growing religion in America and throughout the world has developed millions of followers and thousands are converted each day. This church, this growing universal church that seems to penetrate every culture across the world has no building, no temple, no live cast, no podcast. They don't need a youth group, they don't have women's ministry, they don't have men's ministry. There's no pastor, there's no group of elders, there's no written doctrine. No rules, no sin, no guilt, no punishment. No heaven, no hell, no rituals, no doctrines of faith, and certainly no scriptures. They don't take up collection baskets, they don't ask for tithes. Most who are followers don't even know they're followers. They're extremely devoted, though, and unwaveringly loyal to their beliefs and their leader. Their leader rarely manifests himself, fearful that they would realize who they're really following. We're going to see that this religion has been around from the beginning of the world, but only in the last five decades has this belief system become mainstream. The last three decades, this religion has expanded at an unprecedented pace. Millions have become followers. Sadly, they've been duped. Their new faith is empty and destined to destroy them. The expansion and growth of the most popular religion in the world was predicted in the Bible thousands of years ago. God told us that in times, as the world spirals towards extinction, this religion would become almost universal. In fact, you know more followers of this religion than you do of your own. Almost everyone you see every day have already surrendered their lives to another leader. A leader who makes promises but never delivers. 
Incredibly, these followers are incredibly arrogant about their belief system. They're totally intolerant to those who speak of Jesus. Oddly, they'll embrace any other religion because it's no threat to them. They're clutching to their beliefs even when it's obvious that their belief system is failing them and their lives are falling apart. The followers of this religion are unsettled, but they'd rather remain there than admit they've been deceived. Their new faith falls short and they search for answers, not wanting to admit their fear of the future. They crave peace, but can't find it. Security, but they're actually very insecure. They seek confidence about the future, but they're drowning in anxiety and worry. Their their unwavering faith is failing, but they're so loyal to their leader they can't admit it. They struggle to understand their purpose, struggle to find some sense of peace about the future. Their faith fails them because they've been deceived in believing that it's working for them. That this is the best existence that humans can expect to have. That reality, although often unspoken, is driving our insatiable appetite as a culture to know and control the future. Our society flocks to psychics, tarot cards, palm readers, superstitions, ancient calendars, UFOs, alien encounters, tea leaves, astrology, horoscopes, anything else that will give us some sense of peace about the future that we know is crumbling. People flock to these options because they're becoming more and more unsettled. We all know it because we can feel it. We're all headed to some big event. You can just feel it. We get the sense that our planet is on the brink of disaster. People are prepping for any number of possibilities, none of which seem too good. Isolated, coordinated terrorist attacks, Electromagnetic pulses, nuclear explosions, asteroid impacts, plagues, famines, biological weapons, moral implosion, ethnic wars, race wars, economic wars, tsunamis, hurricanes, global warming, and hundreds of other concerns. In our interconnected world, a virus that begins in a small village of people in a very remote area of the world can cause a worldwide epidemic in days. With these potential disasters looming on the horizon, it's amazing that anyone finds any sense of peace. No wonder substance abuse, anxiety, and depression are becoming a normal part of the human experience. But there are some people. There are some people who don't seem that freaked out about the future. In fact, they have a genuine sense of peace in the midst of what's a very chaotic world. It doesn't seem like they can do it themselves, it's just in them. They look forward to the days ahead and they call it a blessed hope. They don't live in denial, they're not psychotic, their drug screens are almost always negative. In fact, their view of what's about to happen is far worse than most people can imagine. They would tell you with confidence what's coming And not one of the events above that I mentioned, but perhaps all of them are on our horizon. In fact, they seem to know what's going on and they seem to know what happens before it happens. Yet they live confidently and peacefully in that truth. It's human nature to fear what we don't understand, to fear what we can't control. 
Yet many have found answers in the midst of an ancient manuscript. In fact, they're convinced that God himself wrote these words long ago. They believe that they know the future because God told them what would be in the future. Because they know in advance what's going to happen, their fear is replaced with concern, but they walk confidently into the future. Now to join us in this series, or any series at Remnant for that matter, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe what's in the Bible, and you don't even have to agree with us. God and the Bible will reveal themselves to you when your heart's ready. This collection of ancient manuscripts, written over 1,500 years from beginning to end, 1,500 years, 40 different authors, most didn't even know each other. It's a book that claims the author is God, that it's God's story of his relationship with man that he created. Crazy, right? I mean, how could God write a book? And why would anybody believe that God actually wrote a book? Years ago, I was searching for that exact answer. I decided it's time to figure out this Jesus thing once and for all and move on to something else. So I began reading the Bible with a heart focused on opening to see the truth and deciding for myself, I read the book of John. Came across a verse that really made me start thinking. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I really thought about that verse. That's kind of a promise from God. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, and if it doesn't happen, keep looking for something else. If God really did tell us these things before they happened, and then they actually happened exactly as he said they would, even with my skeptical heart, I would not be able to ignore that kind of evidence. I mean, how could 40 authors over 1,500 years describe the same events that haven't happened yet with extreme detail and internal consistency if God himself didn't tell them what to write? But I wasn't going to blindly believe that God really wrote this book. I demanded that God prove it to me. Surely, I thought, if you're able to predict things thousands of years later and they happen exactly as they said, that would be something, particularly if it happened more than once. I mean, everybody gets a chance, right? I mean, you might get one right, or if you get one right, okay, but, but what if it happened more times? Well, it turns out that the number of separate prophetic topics in the Bible is not just a few, but 737. It represents 27% of the Bible. 27% of the Bible is telling you what's going to happen before it happens. Okay, so if these 737 predictions were obvious, you know, the sun will rise every morning, or the moon will never become a square, or water will always be wet, what are these predictions anyway? Well, it turns out that most of them had to do with the arrival on earth of a Messiah, a promised one. The future events of the world would be laid out, and the return of the Messiah to judge the world would be the topic. Of the 333 prophecies about the Messiah, there are over 300 references in the Bible about him coming to us. One out of every 30 verses talks about Jesus coming back to us. 23 of the 27 New Testament books mention the Lord's coming. Jesus himself referred to his second coming 21 times. 
There are 1,527 Old Testament passages that refer to the second coming. Old Testament passages. Every time the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. People are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus over 50 times. The Bible tells us this Messiah will come the first time to show us God and to reveal how much he loves us. He'll die by crucifixion, he'll resurrect, he'll return to heaven, and after a period of time, he will come back a second time to judge those who reject the gift he offered them. So I thought this should be easy, right? I mean, did the Messiah come exactly as predicted the first time? Did he do exactly what the Bible said he would do? How many of those predictions about the first coming turned out to be wrong? It turns out that Jesus fulfilled without a single error over 300 prophecies during his lifetime on earth. He fulfilled them exactly and completely down to the craziest detail. Many of these prophecies were completely out of his control. In fact, many of the prophecies made absolutely no sense to the person that wrote them down. Imagine writing a document and describing something that makes no sense to you, but knowing that you're compelled to write it. And what makes prophecy even more amazing, the writers had no reason to write most of this stuff unless God himself told them to. His birth, fulfilled prophecy included born of a virgin, tribe of Judah, descendant of David, from Galilee and Judea, born in Bethlehem, birth announced to wise men who would bring gifts, born where infants would be slaughtered, escaped to Egypt, Lamb of God announced to shepherds, preceded by a star in the sky. His life, rejected by the Jewish people, the prophecy said. Triumphant entry into Jerusalem on, of all things, a donkey, they said. Praised by little children, incredible miracles would not be believed or would be ignored. He'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. His death on a cross that had not even been invented yet. Surrounded by scoffers who divide his clothes and gamble for them. He's silent before his accusers. He's pierced in the side. Bones are not broken, which was customary. They pierced his hands and his feet. He's crucified between two criminals. Even down to the detail of he'll be given vinegar to drink. Ridiculed by his enemies, thirsty on the cross, would condemn his spirit to the Father. Every detail. His resurrection on exactly the day predicted. Buried with the rich, appears to many, reveals the scriptures, ascends to heaven, leaves the Holy Spirit. Everything predicted. He fulfilled over 33 prophecies in the single day when he died on the cross. And of all that, about his first coming to earth, not one prophecy was wrong, or even close to wrong, or could even be interpreted as inaccurate. So if every prediction about his first coming is literally and specifically accurate, and the second coming is mentioned eight times more, I can with great confidence say that this collection of ancient manuscripts will reveal to me what's to come and will prepare me for it. But maybe they just got it right with the Messiah guy. What about the other prophecies? Are, are they true too? In 700 BC, Isaiah wrote that there would be a Medo-Persian king by the name of Cyrus, 
He predicted the rise of King Cyrus, the deportation of people to Babylon, and their return back to their country 160 years before it ever happened. In 530 BC, the prophet Daniel predicted there'd be four great Gentile powers in the history of the world and no more. That four Gentile powers would rule the entire world at once. Babylon, Persia, then Greece, then Rome. These four Gentile powers or, or ruled exactly as predicted and no one has ruled the entire world since the fall of the Roman Empire, the fourth one. The prophet Daniel predicted to the exact day, the day that the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem and present himself at the temple. His prophecy was so well known, so believed, and so anticipated that people lined the streets with palm branches looking for the Messiah who would come on a donkey that day. Around 630 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah predicted that the wicked people of Judah would be taken captive by the Babylonians and their captivity would last for exactly 70 years. Want to guess what happened? The Babylonians held them in captive for exactly 70 years to the day. 737 prophecies and about 60% have already occurred and been validated with 100% accuracy. I don't know about you, but that tells me a few things. One, this book was written by God. And if it wasn't, I want to follow the person that did it. Second, this book then must be true about everything. If every detail was accurate down to the greatest detail that reveals the character of God, that means everything else he wrote has to be exact to the purpose and exactly correct, every word. And third, I wanna know what this book says about my future. If God went to that extreme to tell me what's gonna happen, I wanna make sure I know. He said he's going away and he's gonna come back to us. He's preparing a room for us. He's gonna come back for his second coming. What does that God say about his return? What does he say about the next time he steps into his creation? Welcome to the study of end times. We're going to be here for quite a while. So we're about to embark on a journey to learn what God says in the Bible about our future. But I want to put up a few guardrails or godrails for this study. First, we have to be careful to avoid sensationalism. Sometimes in our desperation to make sense of what's happening in our world, we are too open to sensationalist claims. One of the problems when you begin to study end times and revelation is that people start going nuts on sensationalism. Like everything has to be a Hollywood movie. Date setters, people who try to identify the Antichrist, people who make every earthquake, disease, disaster, or conflict a sign of the end times. For many, everything that happens is a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming back soon. But not everything that happens is a prophetic sign. The problem is that when everything becomes a sign, nothing actually is a sign. We must make sure that we view current events in light of the Bible rather than looking at the Bible through the lens of current events. You understand the difference? You see, a lot of people look at end times and they're like, okay, well, here's what's happening. Let me go find scriptures that support that. That's not how you act with the Bible. What you say is, here's what the Word says. 
Here's what God says is true. Where do I see evidence of that in the world today? Second, we must avoid the opposite of sensationalism, which is scoffing anytime anybody mentions end times. Many today react negatively to any sign or any discussion about the end times. You're a lunatic, you're a fanatic. They say it's foolish and unwarranted to look or even talk about end time scenarios. But the question we should ask is, is that view supported in scripture? Should we just blindly go towards the end and trust that God has it in his hand and not learn about it. Several denominations do exactly that. But look at Jesus' rebuke of those who ignored the signs of the times. He answered them, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus said, look, there's signs all over the place. There's signs everywhere. He clearly expects his followers to recognize the signs. Third, we need to embrace an understanding of the complexity of this topic. This is not an easy topic to understand. It's complicated. We have little bitty human minds. And these are the words and acts of a mighty God. We understand what he wants us to understand. We don't understand a lot. We can't put things into Revelation or into the scriptures that aren't there. We can't try to define what we wish was there. It's great to hold strong convictions about prophecy. The Lord wants us to study and understand and experience transformation. If he didn't want us to know about the future, he wouldn't have talked about it so much. Jesus said that his followers should be able to recognize the signs of the times. What does that mean? Signs of the times are visible events, some miraculous, that point to something beyond themselves. They help us know what to look for and pay attention to. Jesus teaches that before he returns the second time to judge the world, there will be clear signs that occur ahead of that to prepare us. We see these things happening and we know his return is imminent. When the disciples asked Jesus what those signs would be, he didn't say, don't worry about the signs of the end of times. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to tell you because it's none of your business. We'll see that he outlined and gave general and specific signs of the times. And after doing so, he told them about the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, you know he is near at the very gates. It's important to understand, though, what Jesus meant about his return. There will be a day when Jesus physically and visibly returns to earth to bring justice to those who persistently and repetitively denied him. When he speaks of the signs of the times, he's speaking of the events right before he steps back into his creation again. However, the Bible teaches, in my opinion, and we'll go through this in great detail, that prior to that event, Jesus will not return to earth, but he will meet his followers in the cloud, a moment that we call the rapture. The next major event in prophecy is the rapture of the church. There are no signs that scripture says 
point to the rapture from the moment Jesus left. He told us to be ready for his return at any moment. Dr. John Wolford describes it this way. There are all kinds of signs each year to let you know that Christmas is coming. Lights everywhere, trees, decoration, music, lots of signs about Christmas. But Thanksgiving seems to sneak up on you. There are no real signs for Thanksgiving. He says that the second coming of Jesus is like Christmas. Lots of signs that should be obvious, but the rapture is like Thanksgiving. There are no signs, but when you see the signs of Christmas everywhere and Thanksgiving has not yet arrived, you know it's coming near. The signs of Christmas are appearing around us all today. The coming of Christ to rapture his church, I think, is very near. I went back and looked at my notes. I taught this series five years ago. And I said, I am amazed every day that we're still here. I'm amazed. I'm just stunned. I thought we'd be gone. Back then, I said, I think, I don't know if we'll be here next week. I think Jesus is going to come get us. I don't know exactly when, but I'm ready for the trumpet. I'm ready to get out of here. Five years later, I'm still saying the same thing. 2,000 years later from the disciples, we're all still saying the same thing. But let me tell you this, we're closer than anybody's ever been. We're closer than any humans have ever been to the return of Jesus. So when we speak of the signs of times, we're speaking about what will happen during the time immediately prior to Jesus' return to earth and Armageddon. We'll learn that most of these signs will occur after the church has been raptured. In fact, the rapture of the church does something very important theologically. It removes the presence of the Holy Spirit from the earth. You see, the only reason Satan doesn't have full reign of our world right now is because you and I have the Holy Spirit in us. But when we're raptured, the Spirit's no longer here. Satan and the Antichrist have full reign to do what God's allowing them to do. Everywhere a sign. There are signs everywhere. It's interesting to note that what most Bible scholars recognize as the end times is not just a single sign. It's like a dashboard of lights, and the warning lights begin to flash. And what's freaking everybody out right now is the warning lights are flashing everywhere. Everything's starting to happen. Floods, famines, earthquakes, pestilences, wars, rumors of wars. There's signs in the heavens. There are signs in nature. There are signs in the news. There are signs in the Jewish feasts. Everywhere you look, prophetic signs are flashing warning lights, telling you the end is near. The stage is being set for many of the predictions and prophecies in Scripture, and they're going to pass before our very eyes. We are living out prophecy every day in our world. Every day the news reads like the prophetic books of the Bible. The story of end times will play out on earth in physical events, but the real battle, as I said, is a spiritual one. Satan and Jesus will battle for your eternity and mine. That's what the battle's about. Who's going to save or destroy God's creation? Since the battlefield of Satan is our mind, it's not surprising that the first signs of the time that we need to explore has to do with the way we think about the world. I'm going to spend the rest of today talking about this sign. It's the most subtle, it's the most harmful, and it has catapulted to the front in the last 15 years. 
It's been embraced by the majority of people today, and it's what Jesus calls the wide road that leads to destruction. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousnesses are seared. But understand this, in the last days there'll come time of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. They're everywhere. Second Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. God said, I want you to know what's going to happen. Hang on to me, you're going to be persecuted. In the last 15 years or so, apostasy has exploded on the world scene. People have devoted themselves to the teaching of demons. Satan's theology. I'm not talking about demon worshipers. I'm talking about good people with good hearts who love other people, who want the best for the world, who cares about what happens to people. Good, wonderful people who bought the lie of Satan and they don't know it. Rejecting the truth of God is going to cost them everything if they don't embrace it. Those people were us. They're following a new religion, a new faith, and most of them don't even know it. And more importantly, Satan has brought this faith so subtly and with such appeal that most people don't recognize it. Like everything Satan does, this false teaching at first blush seems good. It seems to fit. It sort of aligns with what we think should happen. It makes no sense to us that we wouldn't believe these things. So good people with good hearts who want to do good get deceived. So while we look for physical signs on earth, God tells us that the warning signs should be the global acceptance of the lies that Satan has put in the minds of people. Satan has a very clear agenda. He wants to change the way people view the world, particularly the way they view God and very particularly the way they view Jesus. He'll soon be sending his representative, the Antichrist. But first, he has to prepare the world to receive him. Don't miss that. Our world right now is being groomed. It's being groomed for the arrival of the Antichrist so that people will be ready to receive what he teaches. We live in a world that's being groomed for the arrival of and the acceptance of the Antichrist to earth. The, scri the scriptures, hang on, I'll get to you later. The scriptures predict that there will be a growing apostasy or departure from the Lord as we get near the end times. It's not that people will doubt the scriptures, they're just going to openly reject them. It's not that they're going to debate about whether God's word is true, they're just going to deny it's God's word. Become intolerant of those who embrace God's word. 
But before we get into specific apostasies, I want to explain something to you of what it means to follow Jesus. You see, we all have opinions. God gave us a mind. He allows us to think about things. We hold on to things, and we have strong emotional ties to them. We have thoughts that are ours about sexual preferences or relationships or ways we should reach God or what religion should be. What may surprise you that many of you may not know is that when you follow Christ, you keep many of those opinions when you surrender to Jesus. It's only over time that the Holy Spirit begins to change your perspective, replace your opinion with God's truth. For instance, you may see nothing wrong with homosexuality or sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Many in our world would make that argument. You may think that what two people do in the privacy of their home is up to them. You may think they would be great parents. You may think that two people who love each other should be together in whatever way the two of them decide. You may believe that you have no right to weigh in on their personal life. We all have strong opinions on this topic and many others. But here's what you may not know about Christians. Many of us left to our own opinion would agree with you. From our limited understanding as a human, some of those things make sense. But let me explain why we can't tolerate, but we can still love those who are gay or living together. We can't agree with them because what they're doing is a sin and will have consequences. Tolerance does not mean approval. You see, when I surrendered to Jesus, I surrendered to embrace his truth instead of mine. If he says it's true, that's what I'm going to believe and follow. I may not understand it. I may not recognize it. He says he's the judge, so I want to follow his parameters. If he says it's a sin, it's a sin. I don't have an opinion because God's truth is spoken. I don't have to get an opinion. I just go look and see what God's word says. A key part of actually surrendering to Jesus is giving up your ideas and your beliefs about how the world should be and allowing God's truth to embrace the, you and follow you. Now, everything in the scriptures are true. When I made Jesus Lord of my life, I surrendered to his truth. And just like an ambassador, like the U.S. ambassador speaks for the president, I don't give my opinion anymore. I don't have one. On areas where God has spoken, I do what Jesus did. The word says, whatever. You see, I don't have to have an opinion on truth. It's true. It was true before I ever had an opinion. It was true before I was ever born. It was true before I ever had the free will to give an opinion. It's been true forever. I just have to agree with God. That's going to be important as we go forward. When it comes to truths revealed in Scripture, being a Christ follower is not about changing your opinions. It's about not having one. Jesus is not looking for our opinion. He doesn't care about your opinion. He cares about your obedience. Explaining the things of God to the people of God is like explaining the internet to an ant. You, you have the intelligence to understand what he's allowed you to see, but you don't have the knowledge and intelligence to know all that's going on. So our opinions really don't matter. Our surrender and obedience is what matters. It's important to understand this because in this series, God's going to challenge the way you think about him. He's going to ask you to wake up and stop being deceived. So with that said, let me just dig a little deeper into apostasy. 
Apostasy is a complete and total rejection of everything God stands for. That's what apostasy is. It's a complete attack on the truth of God's moral standards, God's laws, God's truth, God's plans, God's message, God's people, and ultimately God himself. It starts out like a cancer that slowly grows and builds, and before anybody recognizes it, they're in desperate need of resuscitation. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits? Teaching of demons? Do you ever notice that being deceived by Satan doesn't feel like that? When we're deceived by Satan, it doesn't feel like we're rejecting God. But our feelings never really change our reality. Jude 1, 18, in the last time there'll be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Matthew 24, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The open, deliberate, willful rejection of the truth of the Bible is described in Scripture as one of the major characteristics of the signs of the last days of his church on earth. Not only will the world not like us, they will reject everything about us. And it's a sign that has become rampant and widespread over the last 15 years, particularly in the last 10 People are now openly rejecting God, openly attacking Christians, openly denying the word of God. Let me contrast the theology of God and the deception of Satan so we can see what we're talking about. This mindset will help you see how, how subtle Satan's deceptions are. And I believe you'll recognize some of the things going on in our world today. You see, the sign of the times, the fastest growing religion in the world, the one that you've probably not heard a lot about is humanism. Humanism. Followers all over the world. Growing like crazy. No church, no temple, no leader. Humanism. God told us to wake up and pay attention. He's being denied. His truth is being denied. His existence is being denied. The warning sign goes on high beam when this ideology dominates world discussions and decisions as it does every minute of every newscast. The Judeo-Christian truths of the Bible have supported the world for the last 2,000 years, and now they're being replaced with a new philosophy that is becoming worldwide and universally adopted, and it's called humanism, which negates personal responsibility for sin, promotes human wisdom, scientific proof, and the denial of the supernatural. Humanism replaces God with man. It denies the existence or influence of God. It rejects anything supernatural, anything that can't be explained by science. Everything is understood by the human mind and faith as the collective power of humans. It looks to science for all explanations, elevates creation over any creator, Trust collective human effort to solve the world's issues. Centers on individual freedom and expression. Teaching not just tolerance, but the acceptance of almost anything humans can imagine. 
It is the doctrine of Satan. It's the exact same doctrine that caused him to fall from heaven and to deceive Adam and Eve. You don't need God. You can become your own God. That's humanism. God tells us that a key sign of the end times is when this false ideology becomes widely accepted and the doctrine of God is openly denounced. It's happening in our world today exactly as predicted thousands of years ago. The apostasy is a direct attack on God's truth. God tells us there's no middle ground here. There's a war going on and you're on one side or the other. You're either following him and his truths or you're deceived. Let's look at what God tells us. He says we are created in his image, that we are deeply loved by him, that he has uniquely created us with gifts, personalities, and passions, that he created us to have a relationship with us, and he wants that relationship to have huge potential and to last for all of eternity. We're created in his image, and thus we have more value than any created thing on earth, that human life is one of the most important gifts entrusted to us from the moment that he knew us in the womb. God tells us that we're highly valued and loved desperately, but we have one problem. We were born with a sin nature. That sin nature comes from man's attempt to be his own God. Keeps us from being all that he created us to be. Sin, as God defines it, is any action, decision, or thought that goes against what God has revealed as truth. God determines what sin is. He's the judge. It's his universe. God teaches us that we must take personal responsibility and accountability for our sins, and we must agree with him on what our sins are, exactly what we've done. If we allow Jesus to take the punishment for our sins, then he promises to forgive us, but we have to agree with him first. We have to acknowledge that we made mistakes. We have to own our actions. That way we can learn from our sins and avoid repeating them and move towards the potential that he put in us of being just like Jesus. He can't wipe out a debt that we refuse to total. So the clear message of God is that we're loved by him, deeply loved, but with sin issues that we must own, confess, and repent of. All he wants is for us to take responsibility for our decisions and trust him to guide us out of them. We have to humble ourselves and agree with God. We have to understand that he loves the sinner but hates the sin. His love for us is unconditional. We aren't bad people. In fact, there are no bad people, just people who've been deceived by Satan and are living sinful lives. Every human, God says, no matter what they've done, can turn to Jesus, confess their sins, turn away from Satan and be saved. It's God's desire that no one perishes, but that all are saved. God tells us that the punishment of sin is death, but Jesus took our place. Either way, God's holiness requires his justice. Satan, on the other hand, teaches the opposite. God doesn't really exist. You can be your own God. You can define your truth. You can judge yourself. You have the power inside of you. You just need to unleash it. You're holding it back. You see, you're part of this incredible humanist, and you're just holding everything back. But if you do believe that there's a God, if he does exist, he doesn't love you. He's mad at you because you've disappointed him. He expects you to be perfect, and he punishes everybody who isn't. 
You're not responsible for your decisions and your opinion of sin is your truth. You decide what's right and wrong. God can only love you if you're perfect. Nobody can be perfect. So if God exists, he's already rejected you anyway. In fact, he's up in heaven right now judging you and critiquing everything you do. He wants to punish you and he seems to find delight in it. Only an idiot would follow a God like that. Only those who are weak or stupid could believe the Bible. You're much more qualified to be the God of your life. Why would you surrender to such a crazy God when you can live in freedom? God says you aren't good enough and you'll never measure up to the demands of you. God wants to take away your fun. Have you seen his anger problem? He wipes out lots of people and he's coming back to punish you. You aren't the problem, he is. Those who embrace humanism sadly believe that God is their problem rather than their solution. It's the expression of pride and arrogance that characterize Satan. Many who have embraced humanism never learn they can be deeply loved separate from their actions. They've never experienced God's degree of unconditional love. Many do not embrace the idea that their decisions and actions are being challenged for the sake of trying to help them rather than attacking their value as a person. Thus, this effort to take responsibility for decisions and actions are labeled as bullying. If you want me to be responsible for the decision I made, you're bullying me. If you want me to own up to that I did something, that, no, no, that's bullying, you can't do that. Oh, it's a hate crime. You hate me. You're pointing out what I did wrong, that's wrong. No, that, you hate me, that's wrong. You're so intolerant. You should be tolerant. You see, humanists want to live in a world devoid of any critique, any criticism, any correction of their action or beliefs, any responsibility for anything they do, regardless of the intent. Satan has deceived many to believe that you cannot call out a sin without also hating the sinner. They don't understand that Christians don't hate them, they just hate what their sin is doing to them. And they know there's such a better way. The ultimate bondage for so many people in our society, they can't separate who they are from what they've chosen to do. So when anyone challenges their actions, they believe that person must also hate them. In addition, they project onto others. If someone has an idea or an action that they disagree with, they begin to attack them as a person. They begin to attack their character. It's not, you're a good person and we disagree on this topic. You're not allowed that. You have to agree with me. You see, because my truth is my truth and it's gotta be true. And if you disagree with me, you're trying to tell me it's not true, but it's true for me. So if you don't agree with me, I'll just tear you down as a person. And then I can discount what you say. Satan has effectively silenced opposing voices regarding sin by claiming hatred and intolerance on those who call sin, sin. We've lost the ability to call a sin, a sin. It, today it's called political correctness. No one is responsible anymore for the choices they make. Sins get renamed and responsibility is always shifted to somebody else. Sins are labeled as diseases. Drunkenness becomes alcoholism. Sexual promiscuity becomes a sexual addiction. 
Substance abuse becomes opiate dependence. Gluttony becomes obesity. Anger and violence, you now have an impulse control disorder. Sins are given softer, more acceptable names. Adultery is now an affair. Homosexuality is being gay. Fornication is living together. Even the word sin is offensive and has been renamed a poor choice. You didn't sin, you just made a poor choice. Or a lapse in judgment. Or a host of other terms that divert responsibility and accountability and tell you that you're still okay. Now that's an overview. I'm going to give you a few more specifics. God tells us that he created us, man and woman. That he created us for one another, that we form a perfect union that completes us, one that aligns us with God. Satan rejects this and says that we're not created at all. Rather, we're just some kind of cosmic accident that evolved into the greatest life form anybody can ever imagine. There's no God, so we don't need God to have created us. In addition, Satan says people can become and identify with any gender they desire. Not only can they choose their sex, but they have no personal responsibility for that choice. They must have been born flawed. God, if he exists, made a mistake, and man needs to correct it. Anyone who calls their sexual orientation a sinful choice is intolerant and assaulting them personally. God tells us that he created marriage between a man and a woman who are followers of Christ. God tells us that sexual intercourse is reserved for man and woman in the covenant foundation of marriage with him. It is a spiritual and physical union that celebrates the commitment and love of those who made a covenant with each other and with God. It's a holy experience that celebrates love and our love for our spouse and God's love for us. It's a communion experience of marriage shared only between a man and a woman as it unites them with the heart of God. It is God's way of bringing children into this family dynamic and avoiding innumerable diseases, relational stresses, and unwanted pregnancies. Satan rejects this and says marriage is an archaic, unnecessary covenant. But if desired, marriage can be between any number of people, any number of sexual orientations. It's not a spiritual union, but a legal one, and anybody should be able to marry anything they want, including objects. Satan rejects and promotes homosexuality, bisexuality, heterosexual intercourse outside of marriage, sexual exploitation, sex with children, and any other form of enlightened sexual expression. It is a physical act, they say, with absolutely no spiritual component. Two consenting adults can do whatever they want. If you have a fetish or a perversion, you must have been born that way. Once again, God made a mistake. It's not your fault. It's not your choice. And thus, you're not accountable for anything except expressing who you really are. Anyone who disagrees or hates the sin of sexual immorality must hate the person as well. They must not only tolerate this behavior, but approve of it as well. The ultimate symbol of God's faithfulness and promise is the rainbow. Symbol given to us after the flood. God reminding us that he would save us rather than destroy us. Satan has turned that symbol into a behavior that God deems perverted. God tells us there's an absolute truth revealed in his word to us, and if we live by it, we'll be blessed. Satan says we can have our own truth as we define it. You have your truth, I'll have mine. And that everything is relative, and your truth is what you decide to make it. Anyone who suggests you should be accountable to God's truth is intolerant and hates you. 
God tells us that innocent human life is to be highly protected and sustained at all costs. That every person he created, he knew in the womb before they were born, and to take an innocent life is sinful. Human life is to be valued highly and much more than the life of any animal or created thing. Satan says we should decide if a child lives or dies. That every woman has a choice and there's no consequences for that decision. That humans, animals, and all created things have equal value. That you should be equally punished for hurting a dog as you are another human. Animals should have the same protection as humans, they say. God tells us that Jesus is the only way to restore our relationship with him. Satan says we don't need a relationship with God because we can be our own God. And if there actually is a God, there are many paths that lead to him and you can choose any one you want. The greatest sin of our time, followers of Satan would say, is intolerance. You need to let me choose whatever I want to choose. You need to agree with me that it's okay, and you don't need to judge me for it or even tell me that you disagree. God tells us that we should place our trust in him and him alone, that he's all we need and far more than we ever deserve. Satan says we need to place our truth and security in ourselves. Humans don't need a God. We can find our own security in money or power or our nation or our military or our scientific understanding, our inner power. It's the human that should be celebrated, not God. God says that we have a limited understanding of our world and his ways are higher than our ways. There are things too wonderful for us to understand. There's a supernatural world that can't be explained by natural things or the human mind. It is supernatural. Satan says if we can't explain it, it's not real. That if the scientists can't understand it, that it's not possible. That anything of God, if it's beyond nature, can't be of God because it doesn't exist. If we can't explain it, God didn't do it, they would say. And if human minds don't understand it, then it's a myth. We're going to see in the weeks to come that the Antichrist, who will be Satan's primary representative on earth, will mock and stand against everything God stands for. Just as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God, the Antichrist will be the visible representation of Satan in human form. But before he arrives on the scene, Satan has to prepare people to receive him. Humanism is the foundational belief and doctrine of the Church of Satan. The Antichrist will bring in a one-world government, one-world currency, one-world religion of tolerance, one-world military, and promise utopia on earth that celebrates man and denounces God. He'll promise world peace, but he'll turn on the world, declare himself to be God, and destroy everyone and everything in the process. Humanism is the deception that has been planted and is growing today that provides fertile soil for people to believe the Antichrist when he presents himself for seven horrific years. And millions of good people with good hearts, good desires, have been led into a very cleverly presented deception. In fact, God tells us that one of the signs of the end times is that those who call themselves Christians will embrace these lies and try to spiritualize their sin. False teachers will come and tell people what they want to hear. People will deceptively believe they're following Jesus when actually they're following Satan. Churches will try to blend the truth of God with the lies of humanism in order to attract people to stay relevant, to appease people, to pad their coffers, and to appear open-minded to embrace all. They want to appear tolerant and enlightened. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
but having itchy ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to sort their passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Matthew, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. I've told you beforehand. If Jesus says, I've told you beforehand, you better pay attention. Jesus gives a sobering warning for those in the church who refuse to stand on truth and lean towards embracing humanism. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Satan's humanistic influence on our world is obvious. It's simple, really. Everything God stands for and says is true, Satan calls a lie. Everything God says is good, Satan calls evil. Everything God says is a sin, Satan calls good. Everything God tells us to be careful of, Satan says embrace it, it's safe. Everything God calls sin, Satan relabels and says it's a choice or a disease. You have no responsibility. You can't be punished for it because it's just who you are. Everything that God values, Satan devalues, including, most importantly, you and me. In addition, since the time is near for the return of Jesus, it's important that you know who you're really following. If you're not following Jesus, I'd rather you hear it from me now, today, than to hear him say he never knew you in the future. What makes this unique now the flashing sign of end times is that Satan's philosophy is now being accepted, not rejected. For hundreds of years, people would have rejected Satan's teachings. Now they are embracing them, particularly in the younger generations. Global apostasy is a warning sign that the end is near. People look like they're following God. They look like they're following who they should but they're being driven, manipulated, and controlled by Satan. And most of them don't even know it. Next week, we're going to look at several other signs. If one of these signs was occurring in our world, it would be an indicator. But we're going to see in the next few weeks that warning signs are flashing everywhere. In the heavens, in the scriptures, in the people, in the news, in the world. The only thing holding back the power of Satan in our world today is the presence of Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. There's a battle going on. You and I are on a spiritual battlefield. It's our presence as holy followers of Jesus Christ that holds back the embracement of the Antichrist. When we're no longer here, this world is going to embrace him with open arms. Christians are calling out the lies of Satan and the destructive ideology of our society. I'm not the only pastor teaching on this right now. I know it because I know the Holy Spirit's calling all of us to speak. Once the rapture of God's people occur, and I believe it will occur, Satan will have unopposed spiritual oversight of the world, and we will have disappeared because God finally judged those intolerant people. God finally judged those intolerant people and took them out. We're better off without them. Now we can embrace ourselves. 
the primary presence of the Holy Spirit will have left the planet again. Humans will celebrate that intolerant Christians have been punished and removed from the earth by their God, and now we can have a global universal religion celebrating the human spirit. My goal in this series is to get you to pay attention. See what's happening around you. You may not like it. You may wish things were different. You may want to deny it or you may completely embrace it. Regardless of what you think about it, it doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign and what he says will happen will happen. Your opinion about all this will not change the future, but it will definitely change your future. You see, sometimes life feels like you're entering into a dark theater and you realize you're coming in near the end of the play and several acts have already been completed. You didn't write the play, you didn't ask to even be part of the play, but there you are on stage in the final acts. You can tell that the entire play is heading towards its end, but there's a climax of some sort coming, an end coming, something dramatic. And even though you didn't see the beginning of the play, you can look back now and see its plot and its direction. But how will we know when the final act is coming? There are signs in every play that the final scene is coming. If those occur, we can be fairly certain the last act is just ahead. What are the events, the characters, the plot that will bring the world history to its predicted climax? Will we be wise enough to see it coming? Will we be ready? The only way we'll know we're ready is if we know something about the last act. In the coming weeks, if the Lord is willing and we're still here, we're going to examine some of the events that we know will occur based on biblical prophecy. We'll understand why God has put us into this world at this time for the final act for the final place. We'll know the role we're supposed to play. We'll know the reason we're here and we can walk towards the end confident that God has it all under his control. You see, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. That's where we're called. That's what's happening in our world. Next week, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about humanism uh, and you're going to start to notice it everywhere. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you did not want us to be uninformed. I thank you, God, that you've invited us into the final act of your incredible, incredible story. I thank you, God, this is a final act that never ends. After you've defeated and brought judgment, we live for all of eternity with you. So God, allow us to be ready. Allow us to pay attention, to wake up, to see what's happening. To know our role, to know the importance of renouncing false teaching. To not be the believers that are deceived by the evil one. Help us, God, to hold on to your truth and only your truth. Help us to surrender our opinions to what you've already deemed as true. Help us, God, to live in your word and to live out your word every day until your word, you, are right in front of us again. We love you. We thank you. We look forward to the second coming. And we want to be a people prepared. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.